You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am host person Abraham. And I am the co-host human, Shane? Co-host placebo human. Yeah, there might be an effect. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Exactly. So the placebo effect... Our topic du jour, speaking, we were just speaking in French before the episode, <laughs> trying to, mostly making potentially insulting sounds, but moving on. The placebo effect is a medical marvel, I think you could make that case, and it has been utilized in one form or another for decades, possibly longer, and has come under further experimentation recently as a way of indirectly treating patients for symptoms with pain and discomfort. And while the effect seems to be limited to treating how one perceives such symptoms, we should provide an initial disclaimer here that nowhere in this episode or in this discussion or at any point in time are we advocating for placebo treatments having a direct effect on underlying causes of pain and illness. So specifically, placebos cannot cure cancer, they cannot shrink tumors or kill bacteria, and they most definitely will not end a global pandemic. That being said, the body is a fickle and interesting and challenging thing. So to borrow an analogy from the controversial Winston Churchill, <laughs> the body <laughs> is, quote, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, end quote, which I've heard that one before. Yeah, it makes sense. We're talking about the placebo effect, particularly where, why, and how it happens. It is just that, a riddle inside a mystery inside an enigma. And that's my monologue. Yeah, that's a good monologue. So let's start with kind of getting into the why, right? Because, I mean, you know, when we start really digging into this, we're going to answer a lot of questions. So let's start with the why. Before we get into what an actual placebo is, we want to look at how placebos are used, right? So placebos are used conventionally in a manner to help researchers understand whether a new medical treatment is safer or more effective than no treatment at all. So what they'll do is they might administer a drug for one group and a placebo for the other to see if there's any sort of benefit for that drug. It's to kind of have a comparison. That's one way that it's used. But more recent focus has been placed on a unique effect that the benign delivery of a treatment might have some kind of effect or might have some kind of beneficial change to the body once it's administered. So it's a pretty interesting thing. And you'll see as we go through that it's not as simple as it sounds. Describing essentially what a research paradigm might look like using placebos or, or how this sort of evolved is thinking, okay, I've got some, some treatment I am claiming makes an effect. It's going to cure something or it's going to improve something or whatever. And so I'm going to administer it to these people. Well, a skeptical scientific person might argue, how do you know it's just not your bedside manner and your general care for these people that's actually having an important effect? How do you know it's the medicine? What if it's something else? It's like the fact that they are getting up and they're walking to your place or they're getting to you somehow. And so they're getting some amount of exercise. They're getting exposed to other people. Like, well, there's all these other variables that you're not controlling for. We have to rule those out. So let's have them go do everything exactly the same. And the only thing will change is the quote unquote medicine that you're giving them. So it's like, okay, we want to determine if arsenic is an effective treatment for something, which incidentally, it is an effective treatment for life. It will end that. It will end life. <laughs> so don't, don't take arsenic. And life is not a condition to be cured. <laughs> 
Yeah, for those folks out there that are like trying to figure out that equation. Yeah. Like you don't need to cure life. It's okay. Yeah. We're good. Help it keep happening. Yeah. So anyway, they want to look at arsenic. And so they they have some people come in. They Their clinic is set up the same. And whatever little tincture they give them or pill or, or whatever it is looks exactly the same. But one of those groups, they're getting just nothing like just water or just sugar or just something that's inactive inert and then they can see what are the differences between the people who got the thing that i'm claiming works and the thing that i'm claiming did not work and we'll get into more of that moving forward but that's important i think to dissect that why very carefully as it relates to research and particularly because when you get into certain medical treatments it becomes more difficult to figure out how you're going to have some kind of placebo group and you can do it for just about anything. It's You just have to decide or you have to determine what is the active ingredient or the active thing I'm trying to test. And can I make an inactive version of that thing? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I follow. All right. Perfect. So getting into the what of what a placebo treatment is, for the purposes of this episode, we want to spell it out so it's really clear. And again, note that the placebo itself is not a miracle drug or a cure, right? So it's most of the time a sugar pill. Now, quite simply... Just like a normal one, acupuncture in an inert pill, an injection, a tablet, or a, a medical device, anything that resembles a real and familiar treatment, but does not contain any active medication or direct therapeutic value. And we're going to talk about kind of how the direct therapeutic value plays a key role in some major events that we've talked about before. But the idea is that there is something there. There is some kind of device intervention, something in place that doesn't have a direct therapeutic value, but is used as an intervention for some kind of ailment. It might also be referred to as an inactive treatment or in the case of pills, a sugar pill. So sometimes you'll hear it described as a sugar pill. And real quick, we'll make sure we have the distinction clear between a placebo versus the placebo effect. So the placebo is that medical looking intervention itself, the inactive agent, whatever it might be. Your independent variable for those of you who like the, the science lingo. <laughs> the placebo effect is the actual outcome of having used that inner device because there are plenty of placebos that will have no effect but there's the idea that the placebo actually has some amount of benefit even though it's not supposed to have any benefit and that's what makes them interesting i think the idea that there is something that shouldn't work but it does is just very fascinating. And that's, I think, why people are kind of like stuck on this idea of a placebo effect. Like, why does this actually happen? Because it shouldn't happen, right? Like, your body produces this really cool effect that shouldn't be taking place because there is nothing in the body that should be producing that except for its own self, right? Its own stuff. So it's, it's a really unique thing that makes people kind of scratch their heads about why the body does what it does. And then there's another effect called the nocebo effect, which we're not going to dig into too much, but it's essentially the opposite direction. And it's if you prescribe or you use, you're evaluating some kind of intervention and the intervention maybe has some adverse effect, even though there's nothing there. So it would be like, let's say you are having acid reflux, acid reflux. Let's go with that. I don't know if that's great, but anyway, we'll, we'll say you have acid reflux and you're in my control group. You're the ones that I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a placebo, Shane, mm -hmm. for your acid reflux. But I'm going to tell you this has a side effect that it causes migraines. And so then if I give you this placebo, which is literally just like functionally, it's a Skittle, you know, or like yeah. a Mike and Ike. And so I give you a Mike and Ike 
and then you start having migraines. And there's no reason for a Myconite to cause you migraines, but because I set that expectation, you then have that experience, and that would be a nocebo effect. Also, Myconites are not a great candy. I don't know why people like them so much. They're very sugary. I don't know. That's just a preference, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of like licorice things. That's a hot take. That's probably like the, the hardest stand we're going to take today. Now, as far as the ethics go of placebos, placebos are not used in clinical trials where volunteers will be harmed if they didn't receive adequate care for their condition. And that's a really key element here. They're not going to be just delivering placebos just to see what happens to somebody who might be suffering. And this is really important because there are case studies in the history of of the world where people have done this and there are specific laws and rules for this so in the tuskegee airmen experiment and all the stuff that we talked about when we talked about syphilis way back on that episode they actually delivered placebos like aspirin and other sugar pills to folks when penicillin was readily available so there are examples of how this did occur and how harmful it was when they could have been receiving active treatment and so the ethics of this really stands that we that, that's really kind of the key of it is is if there is harm to be had for the participants in the study, then the placebo should not be delivered. They should be receiving the actual treatment that's going to benefit them. Right. And volunteers should be informed before they agree to take part in a study that placebos may be used so that they may be in the group that receives the placebo instead of the active treatment, but that either way they'll receive the same care and attention as someone taking the regular treatment. But there are some other critical things to understand about being a volunteer. So volunteers may be blinded, which means that not literally blinded. Yeah. That would be horrific. <laughs> they don't like put chemicals in your eyes and turn you into a daredevil. Yeah. They're like, you can't see what we're doing. No, the idea is that they are not going to know which version of the treatment they're going to receive. And that's, and that's when you usually see a control group versus like a, an intervention group. The idea is that there is no way that the participant could know whether or not they're getting the active ingredient or not. So they can't say that they know they got that placebo and they're acting as a result of that placebo. They can't really do that because they don't know if they got the active treatment or not. What they have to do is they have to report out their actual experience with that intervention or that actual experience with that drug, regardless of whether or not they got the placebo or not. And what's what's really interesting about this too is that there is this other approach called open label placebos. And this is where this gets particularly fascinating. And this is when the patient knowingly accepts benign treatment from a placebo absent the therapeutic value that would be afforded by taking the actual treatment. So basically, you're, they tell you this is a placebo and then you take it anyway. And what's crazy is that there is there, there can still be effect. And we'll get into that more in just a minute. But one important thing here on the placebos is just that because they are so useful for ruling out the relative impact of the medical intervention for which you're trying to do research and evaluate, that the FDA does require a placebo in order to systematically prove a treatment's efficacy. And I think that's almost universal. I think that there has to be placebo trials to demonstrate that relative to a placebo that effective that the medication you're testing is more effective. And actually, at the time that we're recording this, the results from early vaccine testing have been recently published, and they were describing their placebo versus their treatment group and talking about what the effects of that were with respect to COVID-19. It's crazy stuff. We're seeing science in action. Always. Now we need to talk about the how, right? How does this work? So conventional pharmaceutical research will do that. Where we talked about one group of volunteers receives a placebo and another receives the target treatment. We kind of we kind of illuminate on that a little bit, but neither the doctors nor the volunteers know who has received the placebo or the study treatment. So the idea is that 
nobody really knows, so they can't influence the results. So they're basically, all the results are based on the client report or the actual effect of, let's say they're testing a blood pressure medication and they're actually testing whether or not the blood pressure changes for that user or that participant. And so if the doctor knows, they could possibly influence the results. Right. So if the doctor doesn't know and the volunteer doesn't know, then it's actually a really, that's a really great situation to be in, to be able to see whether or not that actually did have an effect. Yeah. That's, that's an important one is that there might be reasons to only do a single blind, also just called a blind arrangement as opposed to a double blind. But yeah, and that double blind approach, both the doctor and the patient don't know. And I think people might have the inquiry of how do they know who got what treatment if neither party knows Essentially, what they do is they use sort of a code, which is to say that you randomize treatments, you randomize the patients, and somebody will know, usually experimental, will know who's getting what, but the people who are actually administering the medications and the people who are receiving it won't know. So if I'm like the primary investigator, the primary researcher on this project, I might, I might know like, okay, I'm giving this doctor the placebo or this per- that's going to this patient and arrange it so I have no contact with them. I just, you know, I have like, you know, go to the airport and go to the locker and pick up this this duffel bag with the medicine in it. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so I, I've got all that. Or as I said, there's, there's sort of a code that is written on the different medications that go to the different patients. And then you just, you just decode that later and see who got what, because it's all scrambled up and you wouldn't necessarily know at the time that you're administering it. But the bias that can occur if the doctor knows or the the whoever's administering the medication knows if they go in and they're like oh good luck you know (laughs) they're very clearly giving away the game even if it's something subtle where they're trying not to but they might give hints as to the fact that they know so that's why it's better to do double blind when possible yeah absolutely so because humans are inherently flawed right we're gonna mess up on stuff so there's also the a group of volunteers can actually take a placebo. There's other studies that do this where a group can take a placebo. Another group of volunteers can take a new treatment and another group can take an existing treatment for an ailment to see in comparison to those other folks, the treatment that does exist, how well or how effective that new treatment is in relation to what's current. And that placebo effect is still there to have a control for like what the standard or what the, the symptoms of that ailment would be without the effective treatment or without that new treatment. All right, so the placebo effect, which sounds like it could be a band name, and indeed, before we started recording, looked it up, and I had the thought, you know, we talked about this is, it seems like that would be sort of a goth electronic sort of band, like typo negative, Uh turned out to be, there is a band called the placebo effect, and that's exactly what they are. So, yep, 100%. You would not be surprised if you go listen to the placebo effect. Now, we listened to both, well, we didn't. I listened to both placebo and the placebo effect. Placebo is a better band, just so everybody's aware. Ooh, shots fired. Shots fired. Take that. I don't know. I mean, I, I, the, the placebo effect might be very nice, folks, and you should support artists anyway. Yeah. And maybe that's your bag. You know, maybe you're into it. Yeah. Just, just not Shane. He's I just like different stuff. I'm a curmudgeon. I I have learned this about myself. As open-minded as I am about stuff, I am very particular about things I like, (laughs) and I feel very strongly about that, and the things that I do like, I like so deeply that I have a hard time with other things. So Get off my lawn. So, the placebo effect. (laughs) While the desired result of pharmaceutical research would be a conclusion that results in a positive effect exclusively occurring upon administration of the given treatment, occasionally, interestingly, a similar therapeutic effect occurs in the placebo group absent the direct treatment. And so this suggests, naturally, that there is some kind of psychological reason 
that a placebo would work, despite the fact that it has no active ingredients, it has no active components or chemicals. So we observe the difference primarily in patient report of subjective indicators such as pain or discomfort. So we have to ask, how would this work? Like, what's what's happening here? Yeah. So some volunteers seem to feel better given the increased attention or care during trials. And that can happen sometimes, right? Just the yeah. fact that somebody's attending to an ailment, attending to something painful, just being an ear to listen to, that in itself might make somebody feel better. Yeah, that's that bedside treatment I was talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Therapeutic rapport, therapeutic alliance, bedside manner, all that stuff really does have an impact on patient care. Like when you look at like hospice care and palliative care, there's some really great work in that space that talks about how just the the simple kindness from a caregiver or practitioner can really make a difference. Now, also, if they're told it's a stimulant, their blood pressure might increase. So that's kind of an interesting thing where that is a physiological response just by being told that what they're getting is supposed to do this thing. And the sort of reverse of that if they're told that it helps with with sleep then that person might fall asleep faster or easier and so again like they're really just getting a mike and ike or melatonin just kidding i know that works Uh, (laughs) but that can help people fall asleep as well I mean, at the end of the day, though, none of these effects that we're talking about have anything to do with the intervention itself. And that's the thing with this placebo effect. These effects, these changes, these results, these outcomes that we keep talking about have nothing to do with the Skittle that you swallowed. <laughs> that's right. And conversely, as, as we mentioned earlier, some participants will report feeling some side effects despite having received a placebo. And that's that sort of nocebo effect that if they know the side effects of the medication that they're taking, or even if they don't, you know, they might report experiencing side effects, even though they're not ingesting or, or receiving anything that would cause those side effects. Yeah. And so to really establish experimental control in this space that we're, we're talking about here, researchers need to rule out the impact of the placebo effect, which is a little bit challenging. Like that's kind of hard to do when you start looking at that, like because it's still one of those things where it's still kind of nebulous what that effect is. Again, we're still sort of trying to unpack how this works. And there is a suggestion that we found from WebMD, so you know, take it for what it is, that the success of the placebo was correlated with how strongly, so I'm quoting them now, how, quote, how strongly a person expects to have results and whether or not results occur, end quote. This is actually sort of similar. If you go back about a year ago, at the time that this is released, we released a three-part series on talking about psychedelics in like a psychological therapeutic treatment. And one of the things that always comes up when you're talking about anything that is these sort of mind altering substances is this idea of set and setting. And that has to do with the expectations. So what expectations you have going into it and expectations again, like that's, that's kind of a weird nebulous concept, but that does seem to play a critically important role in understanding how these placebos work. Yeah. And so As we kind of look at this, a lot of what setting expectations is going to be a lot of like verbal rules and like setting rules and kind of like discussing that stuff. But there is some evidence to show that like there are physiological processes occurring that are not just languaging, right? So on the inside in brain activity, there are MRIs that have actually demonstrated that there are neurons that fire or sometimes react to placebos the same way they might react to an active ingredient or an active medication. So there is supporting evidence to show that placebos can help with pain relief and some neurological diseases based on the way that the brain reacts. Not necessarily they actually help these things, but based on the way that the brain scans indicate or how it responds to 
these placebos. So essentially, as much as can be altered through language is the extent to which you would expect to see the effects. And what's important to know, I guess the implication there, is that language does affect our brains, which should be fairly intuitive because if we didn't have brains, we wouldn't be able to process the language that was coming at us. So (laughs) our brains do, in fact, interact importantly with the language that we both hear and deliver. Now, there is a hypothesis, we'll say, I don't know if there's enough to support this as a theory, maybe this is a theory, that there are those environmental variables that are really important in understanding how and why a placebo works. So for example, as we talked about this whole bedside manner thing, a doctor's empathy, going through the general medical rituals, assuming you're somewhat familiar with those, any symbols that are associated with medicine and medical practice, and this can activate specific quantifiable and relevant regions of the brain that release neurotransmitters and that sort of modulate those symptoms and can have, therefore, a therapeutic effect, albeit a somewhat limited one. So the idea is that your brain can ameliorate some of the symptoms that you're having or that you're experiencing. However, they're not going to treat it to the same degree or it's not going to impact it on the same degree that like an active medication that's designed to do that might do. So while we can see that there are some moments or some events that can actually lead to that stimulation, the expectations actually lead to some of those brain changes too. Those expectations can affect neurotransmitter releases and those neurotransmitter releases are the things that actually change the sensations in the body, ameliorate the pain, like I mentioned, like that, and reduce some of those other symptoms that you go to, that you get treatment for, where they might be administering a placebo. So let's talk about the effects that we can see here. What is the impact of placebo in terms of actual benefit? So this might be actually helpful. A placebo itself might be actually helpful in treating some ailments that can include depression. I do want to throw in the very important caveat that this is something that you should not necessarily rely on placebos. It's possible that it will be effective for some people. Consult your doctor, seek a medical expert. Do not take our advice on this for like if you're feeling that if you have depression and you just want to take Mike and Ike's. Yeah. I mean for some reason <laughs> that Mike and Ike's might be causing the depression. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's bad candy. So like if, you've, if you're eating bad candy, I can't imagine you're going to be happy about it. But I know that's different than depression. But it can be a placebo can be effective for depression for some people. It can actually ameliorate some experience of pain, sleeping disorders, to some extent, some of the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome and menopause, as well as some other other things. Yeah. So as an example, there was a study that included placebo inhalers for asthma. And while it made no difference on breathing tests that were conducted, the placebo inhaler was reported as being as effective as the medicine in providing relief. So those folks would take the inhalers and they would get relief from these placebo inhalers that actually had no active ingredient that would have treated the concerns. Yeah. So this actually does start to raise the issue that sometimes what will happen is that there are... There are components of effective medicine that are not the components we're studying, but are nevertheless the actual active components. And so, for example, if we talk about with the inhalers, and again, huge caveat, inhalers are medicine. Research has been done on these. Don't throw away your inhaler. Like Use, again, follow your doctor's prescription. But just as an example, if for some people, what they need is a quick burst of air into their lungs then it's not that the actual medicine is ineffective or that the placebo has some magical properties. 
Rather that the more relevant feature here to to consider is that it was the the burst of error that was needed. And so that was the relevant variable, maybe for some people. Now, again, for most people and my understanding of the research on inhalers is that the actual medicine is critically important and life-saving. And so don't just expect that. But just trying to give as an example that sometimes there is medicine, but the effect that people get from that medicine is actually from not the medication itself for some people for some conditions. Absolutely. So another condition that we want to talk about within this is an extension on this, which talks about getting drunk, which is <laughs> a blast to think about. I mean, I feel like we had to see this coming is like, of course. Yeah. I, just as soon as we started talking about this and the expectations and the fact that people can have these effects, I feel like you had to see non-alcoholic alcohol coming along. And honestly, we've probably seen this in our own lives at some point in time. Like the fact that you've probably seen somebody that's maybe had one drink and they are way off kilter. And you know that their drink wasn't very powerful is always kind of an interesting thing. So in the BBC article about New Zealand study in 2003, participants who were told they were drinking vodka, but not really drinking vodka, appeared to be more swayed by misleading information and more certain that their memory was correct than those who were told they were drinking tonic water. So basically what they were thinking was is that this misleading information actually led them to thinking they were a little bit more drunk. They perceived their situations drunk and they couldn't recall events as well because they were too drunk. So there are some implications for this and researchers believe that social and non-social influences can impact a person's recall of events, which yes, that is true. Yeah, absolutely. The so-called drunk participants performed worse at recalling fake information they were given about a crime that was occurring. So Again, there's this expectation setting that can have that effect. And the participants being told that they were intoxicated seemed to impact them despite the fact that it wasn't true. So they weren't intoxicated, but they were told they were. And so all the participants that were in a bar and the flat tonic water was poured out of a real vodka bottle and the rims of the glasses rubbed with a lemon that had been soaked in vodka to give them the smell. So they could smell it, but they couldn't taste it and they weren't drunk. So what you're seeing is that they were not drunk, but they were told they were intoxicated and they started displaying what we would describe as symptoms or outcomes related to being too drunk simply by the nature of just being told they were intoxicated. The secret to getting drunk is just the smell. There's not actually <laughs> anything in alcohol. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Surprise. Just go, just go smell your whiskey. <laughs> That's all it takes. So Alan left us a really fun story talking about his experiences with a, the sort of pseudo placebo effect with alcohol and so Alan writes that he told us that he had made a jug of butter beer for a Harry Potter, a Harry Potter party. It's hard to say. <laughs> Harry Potter party. A plentiful Harry Potter party. <laughs> the recipe that he used called for butterscotch schnapps and cream soda. And he said he made it and it was a big hit and everyone was raving about it and acting all sloppy. And then a wise guest at the party brought to Alan's attention, brought his attention to the bottle to indicate that it was only 30 proof and that it was only schnapps. So essentially, he had made a very light cocktail. However, everyone was acting as if they had been knocking back tequila shots and getting all sloppy. So he immediately balanced that concoction with a bottle of uh, caramel Smirnoff, <laughs> really bringing the punch. 
So anyway, drink responsibly. That's a takeaway. Yeah, that's a note for me. On top of that, so that's that's an example of how like, you know, social influences and stuff can actually have some kind of placebo effect or maybe demonstrate some kind of effect, even though there's nothing really there to do that. Now, it can happen the other way, too, with withdrawal symptoms. In a study with women who took a placebo as part of a hormone replacement therapy for over five years, over 5% subsequently reported withdrawal symptoms. So even though they weren't getting the drug, they were still experiencing withdrawal from it. That's pretty crazy. It's almost like a nocebo effect, but just another implication of this that's uh, really wild. So yeah. Anyway, as we described, this whole expectation thing is part of this. And so what's important there is that the packaging of the placebo itself can be really important. And if you imagine if I was like, okay, I'm going to give one group this pill that is supposed to help them manage chronic pain and this other person I'm going to give like a slab of tofu. The person who's getting the tofu is going to be like, this doesn't even look, this looks like a slab of tofu. This doesn't even look like medicine. So the packaging can be important. And some people have reported feeling like the higher priced placebo was more effective than its generic counterpart. So people who take two pills that have the exact same ingredients, but one of them is more expensive, are going to feel like that potentially is more effective. So the implication here is that branding, cost, and packaging, and the overall delivery here can make a difference in how effective or how how prominently that placebo effect is felt. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit in the color psychology episode where color can influence different behaviors and stuff, but the color of the pill might have an impact. So what they find is the red, yellow, orange, those tend to be better for stimulants and using them for stimulant effects, whereas like whites, blues, and greens might be better tranquilizers. And so, uh, you know, you see this kind of interesting space where, you know, I think of like blue is very calming. I can't help but think that. But that is kind of what you're seeing here. It's if it's a tranquilizer, it's designed to calm you down. So a blue would make sense. A white would make sense. They're more tranquil colors. But things that are going to be riled up, like orange and yellow and red, those make sense for stimulants. Now, what they also find is that taste makes a difference. The more bitter the pill is, like if I'm just eating something that's like that tastes like sugar, it's probably not going to have the same effect. But the more bitter, the unpleasant the taste is of the placebos, they tend to have stronger effects. This is all starting to have serious implications for people who are sort of charlatans and who lean into their fake medicine as when they'll say things like, oh, when it's making you sicker, that means that it's working because it's draining all of the toxins out of you. That sort of thing that they might claim is because there's this effect from placebos that you well, those things like bitter pills. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. What's really important to understand here is that there is an undeniable and very clear link to the fact that this has to be learned. It has to be language-based. There has to be some amount of familiarity with this process, with similar products, and with having a expectation about those products and therefore having them function in a very particular way. And this does relate a little bit to this idea of the sunk cost fallacy, which we did an episode on forever ago, like two years ago, probably. Yeah. Where we described essentially that if you are really invested in this, it's more likely to have that impact. Similar in a way, in an extent, not to get into it now, but to hypnosis. It's coming back. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about the prevalence. How how common is this? And 97% of general practitioners in the UK prescribe placebos. So the majority of practice, I mean, that's a huge percentage. And What you'll find is they either do a pure treatment or an impure treatment. And so here's kind of what that means. 
for a pure treatment, they're talking about treatments containing no active ingredients. So these are essentially SIBO caps. They're sugar pills. They're stuff that you can buy. It's a Mike and Ike. This is the pure treatment where it's just nothing but an inactive medication that has nothing to do with anything other than it's sugar. Now, the impure treatment, though, has active ingredients that don't have an effect on the condition. And that's what I was mentioning before when we talked about the, the Tuskegee Airmen and the syphilis treatments. They were receiving aspirin. The aspirin would not do anything for treating syphilis or their condition. And so the impure treatments are the prescription of a medication or something that does have an active ingredient that has nothing to do with the symptoms or the condition by which the patient is suffering. Now, I think to be clear here, we want to say that it's not that the practitioners in the UK are, are prescribing 97% of their prescriptions are placebos, just that 97% of practitioners will use placebos in some part of their practice. Yeah. Probably not not like an enormous part of their practice, just where they have some clinical judgment to do that. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt here. I'll make sure it's very clear that we're not saying that 97% of medications are placebos. That's definitely not the case. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, the UK, I imagine that the practitioners are probably doing pretty well and actually doing pretty well for the, the overall health of the country. Right. Okay. So let's talk about sports here. Mm -hmm. In a survey done of 30 athletes, 73% of them admitted, not 73, but 73% admitted that they believed that, quote, they had experienced the placebo effect in sports, end quote. And this led to a discussion of, on whether placebos that don't meet any criteria for banned substances should also be forbidden, which is to say, if you give a, I don't know, let's say an Olympic athlete, something that's literally just sugar, it's just an inactive substance, but you tell them that it's a performance enhancing substance and they subsequently do better, is that something that should be banned? And I mean, I feel like if you can talk somebody into performing better, that that should be okay. But I do understand the concern about this here. You have a, a thought on this, Shane? Okay. I do have some thoughts on it, but I think, I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to is like, there's nothing that's going on that isn't part of the, there's nothing that's actually happening consistently, I guess. Like, for example, when Barry Bonds, who is who was one of my favorite baseball players, uh, when he was found to be using performance enhancing drugs, and now he has an asterisk even uh, next to his name for this home run record, even though he crushed that home run record, and even though that's still a very difficult thing to do, no matter if you're on steroids or not, I have, I have opinions on that too. <laughs> the thing is, is that the active ingredients in that, what was going on with that, actually had like a reliable and consistent effect on athletes. So if just about any athlete took it, they would see similar effects. With a placebo effect, you don't see that with every single person. And so there's not a consistent effect that could occur. So to, to ban it to me makes little sense because it's not something that is consistently occurring or could happen for every single athlete that, that partook in whatever performance enhancing placebo there was. So I, to me, it doesn't make any sense to ban it. It also is. I mean, I feel like it's kind of similar to like if you had a really effective coach and that they could really talk you up and get you pepped up and like ready to go. That's not dissimilar from the idea of telling you here, take this skittle and you're going to run faster or whatever it is that they're going to do. You have better endurance. Right. It's functionally very similar to that. So I don't know. Anyway, there are other things in sports that have a placebo effect and sort of superstitious things are kind of one of them. We talked about superstition last year in our Halloween episodes. 
But there's also things like performance tape does nothing, but it can have a placebo effect. Help you, f- you help you think that it's doing something. Yeah. People who wear copper lining and things, cop- there's no reason to think the copper lining would do anything other than be expensive. And that again, it it could have an effect where you feel like it does. Cupping is another one. It actually can be very dangerous, but it can have you feel like you're you're better off having done that. Even crystals. I mean, it really is just anything that you can believe has an effect can have a modest effect on certain things like you feel like you're more invigorated or you feel like you have more energy. And if that came because you like were wearing a crystal around your neck, then it's kind of like, okay, sure. You know, as long as nobody gets hurt, then I, I guess it's not really an issue. But just to help know that, like, essentially, it's it's the idea of a placebo effect. I mean, I think these are all more related to sort of pseudoscience and superstition, but the effect that there is no active reason, there's no active chemical, there's no active agent, there's no active medicine that should affect performance. It's just your belief in that intervention as being effective. And that's enough for some people. So although I feel like they're silly and some of them are actively harmful, I guess I don't necessarily feel like I need to burst that bubble. But I guess insofar as it is supporting an industry that is founded on pseudoscience that is intended to swindle people and that that I don't particularly like. But yeah. Yeah. Damn the man. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So let's look at the research a little bit about this. And when, when we kind of get into this, this idea of a placebo effect, what we find is that most of the research tends to focus on the relationship of the mind and body. And You'll see that a lot because there is still this discussion about the mind-body problem and how the mind and the body are all linked, but ultimately we are just a brain operating a bone mech surrounded by skin. <laughs> That's pretty much all we any human is. I listen to a podcast and they describe everybody as meat sacks. So that's pretty much all we are. Yeah. And the effects are due to those person's expectations. They cause a chemical shift in the environment within the skin, in the body. The brain produces all kinds of stuff. You have all these organs and all you have all these systems that operate in unison. And so when there's a chemical shift, it's going to change something in the body. And those are the similar effects that we're talking about. And most of the research kind of demonstrates that when it comes to a placebo effect and not necessarily anything to do with the active ingredient itself. All right. So for the research on the placebo effect and how to differentiate its effect from actual therapeutic effects may help lower the cost of drug testing and help scientists use the placebo effect strategically in prescribing and treating certain ailments. So it's just something to continue to do research on and gather good data so that we can use this to our advantage. And here's where things start to get very interesting to me. They get a little bit crazy is getting into an alternate perspective about this. So let's get this out in the open first. According to Harvard medical professor Ted Kapchuk, In an insightful interview with Vox, he said, quote, thinking you're going to get better is not what makes you better. That's the mind cure idea. It doesn't happen. It's not the way it is, end quote. And essentially, he is talking about what he thinks is really going on with this. So basically points out that the effects of placebos are only they only work as so far as the brain can modulate the symptoms, right? The brain cannot shrink a tumor. It can't cure malaria. It can't kill bacteria. It can't get rid of covid. However, It may have a profound difference on making things like pain, fatigue, nausea, and making Nickelback sound a little better. It can impact all of those things. It can actually improve all of those things. I don't know maybe about Nickelback. I think that's maybe a little bit of a stretch, but the other ones, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say that one Nickelback might be in the... uh 
the things that placebos are not capable of doing. Yeah, it's more like a tumor or a malaria. Nickelback, malaria, same thing. Auditory STDs is what I described them as. So, <laughs> All right. So Ted Kapchuk, he also pointed out that he is, quote, tired about doing research that people say is about deception and tricking people, end quote. And he points to the misconception of placebo effects as an indication that someone made up an ailment that was illegitimate. So they conducted a study of a group with no treatment at all, which is one way to evaluate medicine that's fairly common, versus a group that was open label, meaning that they had full disclosure as to whether or not they were receiving a placebo or the active treatment. And this was on patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And so those that were in the no treatment group, that they didn't get any placebo, they got nothing at all. They actually got 30% better for no reason. They just did, which, okay. The placebo group that received the open label placebo, they were told that it was just a placebo. They got 60% better or improvement in relief of their symptoms. So it's interesting to note that the effects weren't observed with any measurable physiological marker, as we described, as Capchuk described, but just with the, the patient's subjective reporting. And thus, Capchuk concluded that this is the result of neurotransmitter effects that alter one's perception of pain and discomfort associated with conditions such as IBS. Right. And so th- this kind of reporting acts as kind of like a social validity thing where you basically, you can confirm like, or it's important for you, or uh, you can confirm among your peers. There's a lot of different ways that social validity measures work, but essentially it's for that patient, things feel like they got better. So they're reporting that they did get better. In this case, it appeared quite high. Like what you saw is like people were reporting that they did actually get better regardless of treatment. Now the people that got the placebo tended to do better or report that they got better. But again, that's a self-report. So it might not be necessarily reliable when you get into the kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Right. And so just to make sure we hit this point a final time, that certain conditions such as cancer or heart disease possess measurable components, such as in a large prostate, I guess it could be one of them, yeah, or a tumor or a mass. And while there are necessary drugs to attack the root cause of what the patient is experiencing, perhaps placebos can help alleviate some of the symptoms themselves. So they won't treat the cancer, but they could potentially make the pain less. So this happens by way of changing how the brain interprets pain signals, how our language modifies the function of those events, such as the, the medicine. Yeah, absolutely. So that still leads us to the the question of why does this even work if we know it's just a placebo? Like, how does this actually work? Well, Kapchuk admits we don't really have an, any idea. We don't really know. And that isn't a guarantee for anyone who tries it. Like, that's essentially what we're saying is, and going back to the Olympian analogy, like, it doesn't work for every single person. It doesn't work consistently across a general population. So we don't really know why it works, how it works. Or at least based on the research that we have right now, we don't really know. Yeah. I mean, so thinking about why do we do a lot of things that don't have an immediate or guaranteed outcome that is favorable, but still seem to affect our mood and behavior? And it's like, what is karma, afterlife, superstition, et cetera, all of those things. And this could be used as an alternative after other proven treatments have failed, potentially, although I'm not sure I'd even hang my head on that. Or when a patient is looking to care for symptoms of an illness that can't be identified. So it can be sort of a stopgap measure, sort of a fill in the, the cracks sort of measure. And it's never going to be the full intervention, or at least it shouldn't be for most things. I mean, if the, if the intervention is like, or if the ailment is something like I'm having 
uncomfortable thoughts and then you take a starburst and you you know you stop having comfortable thoughts then in that case sure like that that could be effective i mean your dentist probably disagrees but that could be something to use so i think there's sort of a risk benefit analysis to be to be done here yeah and also too what you'll see is that there is a, a first of all pink starburst will probably cure quite a bit of things right at least mood <laughs> issues like it'll make me feel better sure. if i have a pink starburst i don't know it won't cure anything else but it'll just make me feel good so you don't like mike and ike so you like pink starbursts it's different there's different there's a difference <laughs> okay. between there's difference between licorice and like a like a fruit chew okay that's fine I don't know. it's like a taffy like i don't know taffy's fine i grew up in a town where there's saltwater taffy any, everywhere so it's because you're in florida in a beach town in florida that's exactly it there's a very famous saltwater taffy place right down the road from me wow and it's delicious anyway open label placebos that use is still in its early stages of consideration and experimentation uh but it is certainly an area worth pursuing in regard to patient welfare and pain and discomfort management and also a really interesting thing when you talk about informed consent what you're providing somebody because like because there may be some some medical doctors that provide placebos that maybe don't describe that it's a placebo Right. Maybe yeah. they describe it's a, it's a medication to do that. So this is kind of a really interesting ethics discussion around the idea of informed consent and what you're actually providing people. All right. So let's put on our skeptic scientist hats all the way on. They're always on. But yes. now I'm like I'm pulling it down over my face talking about, again, what could account for these effects. So we'll start with one person, Michael Thace. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Penn Perlman School of Medicine. Go Perlemans, assuming it's a sports team. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's their mascot, the Perlemans. So he claims that the response to the placebo pill is that of classical conditioning. So this is going back to the, the Pavlov thing, the Pavlov's dogs, the salivating. In the Pavlov sense, eliciting a conditioned response. So I think that is a reasonable starting place to look at what is going on with a pill for which there is an effect, even though you have eliminated the expectations of a benefit of that effect. And it could be that when you think of classical conditioning, this is reflexes, right? These are where you essentially can elicit a specific reaction to something that is involuntary and is not subject to language or a general history of learning through operant procedures. And what you'll find in this is that placebo effect schedule can match that of a real drug. So essentially what will happen is if you take a Tylenol for a headache and in a few hours or like an hour, it goes away. Same thing kind of happens with a placebo. Like you take a placebo and in a few hours it goes away. Now, the kind of the key for me on this, though, it's the idea that it, in order for this to occur, there has to be some kind of learning history because babies are not born taking meds and it going away like or learning that relationship, right? Like you might take a medication and there's like a what we describe as an unconditioned response and a response that's unlearned or behavior that we're born with, right? Right. And for this to take in a placebo effect, there would have to be some kind of learning in relation to medication administration. At least that's what it seems like to me. So I don't I think this is a good starting place to start exploring it, but I don't think it's sufficient to explain those other events for folks or for animals who don't have language where this placebo effect could be seen. Right. That's exactly it. Is that they're essentially what could happen is for people who have an experience with medications, taking a fake medication could have the body elicit a similar reaction to that medication as if the medication were put in the body, which could mean things like increasing white blood cell count. I don't know if that's actually a thing or at least increasing the kind of neurotransmitters that help relieve the experience of pain. And that's just the sort of 
mechanical cause effect relationship. This happens, this triggers this, this event in the body. And even when that thing isn't there, the features of the thing are. So it's like, even though the actual medication, the pill, the setting, the timing, all of these things are there. And so that could be what accounts for this for some people. But as you said, doesn't necessarily account for all of it. Other things that could be going on here. Let's take, for example, the fact that there are going to be natural fluctuations in the general well-being of people. So one thing that could be happening for some people is that they were just going to get better and it happened to coincide with them taking medications. And it's like we also talk about a lot of times medications take a little while to work. So what could happen is there is a lot of cushion room between immediate effect and extremely delayed effect where if at any point in an illness you start taking a placebo, you'll eventually start to feel better. And so for some people, the effect of the placebo is actually nothing. But because the placebo happens and then down the road feeling better happens, it could be like a placebo effect thing. That could be an additional way of accounting for what is happening for some people in some of these cases. I like that. There's an interesting analogy from Fabrezio Benedetti. Nice. I'm sure that I butchered that, so I apologize. But Fabrezio Benedetti is a professor of physiology and neuroscience at the University of Turn Medical School. And basically what they say is, quote, it is not different from watching a horror movie. You know, everything is fake. The victim is an actor. The knife is made of plastic. The blood is actually tomato juice. Nonetheless, you are scared and you do have physiological reactions increased in heart beating, sweating, shivers and the like, end quote. So essentially what they're seeing is, is those physiological reactions or those factors are crucial in many circumstances. They affect our body in the operations of our systems in so many different ways. And so even though we know it's fake, we still have these responses. So it's pretty interesting to see kind of where we might see those effects in other places. That's such an excellent, I guess, comparison or or explanation. I really, I really like that one. Yeah, absolutely. So this gets to the those psychological factors are crucial in many circumstances, which brings me to my last one, which is, and this is just going back to this idea of bedside manner. Let's say, for example, you had a medication and you wanted to test that against a placebo and that the placebo still had an improvement, even though it did not contain any of the active ingredients of the medication. Well, it's possible both the medication and the placebo got a boost from the physician care. The fact that they're there doing anything for you, they're paying attention to you, they're making you comfortable, they're probably providing you with more fluids and a non-stressful environment where you have very little obligation and and all of that. So it's like they've essentially restructured your environment to be as comfortable and untaxing as possible and that that is something that had an effect. And so what might then happen is you have some amount of boost that happens both for the active medication as well as the placebo as well as for a group that received nothing at all could all receive some amount of benefit. So that could be another factor that that has this effect for some people. So I'm not trying to say that placebos don't work. I'm not trying to say that there's nothing to be gained from using them. All I'm trying to say is like, what are some of the, the things that we can look at that would reasonably account for the effects that we see that rely on the evidence and the direct observation of the variables that we have in front of us? And, and try and rely on as little as possible things that we, we don't understand or don't see. Because oftentimes, as I said, maybe we're not asking the right question, I guess, in terms of like, was it the placebo or was it the bedside manner? You know, was it the, the placebo or was it the, the fact that you were getting better hydration while you were just incidentally as part of that care? I'm not making a claim that everyone needs to just drink a ton more water. Well, people probably should drink more water, but <laughs> a reasonable amount of water. Yeah, the recommended appropriate amount of water. daily dose. 
just trying to account for this the best we can. But anyway, that's that's what I got on placebos. Do you have anything else to talk about here? I think that really nails it. You know, at the end of the day, people are complex. Human bodies are complex. And there is a, a complete and complex network of systems that work in unison to manage symptoms, to process stimuli that come into your body, right? Like you're processing food, you're processing oxygen. You're There's just so many things that go into the way the human body works. And we still understand so little about how the brain works that this is just one of those things that goes so far into how little we really understand about how our systems manage those symptoms, how our systems manage pain, and especially when it comes to languaging. I mean, to me, languaging is such a big part of this that it's really hard to say that it's actually the Mike and Ike itself, that it is actually the, the expectation. It's the rule. It's the the language that we use to describe it. So it's really interesting that we don't really understand it. But I think from a maybe a parsimonious explanation, there are some pretty clear or at least common sense or logical ways that we could look at this and try to understand it and maybe start asking questions there. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Should I wrap up with some take home points? Let's do it. Okay. So. I think the point here is that a placebo is a benign treatment. It is absent of actual therapeutic variables, I guess, uh, chemicals, medicine, whatever. And it's often in the form of an injection, a pill, or some other medical apparatus. But it is essentially designed to mimic the treatment, but without delivering the actual therapeutic components of the treatment. The other take-home point we would make, too, is empirically, a placebo is used most conventionally to test the unique effects of a new treatment or a drug on a certain condition. It's not used traditionally by itself in empirical studies, but it's kind of found this way into actual studies about its own effects. Right. So essentially, this commonly observed phenomenon is called the placebo effect in which the symptoms reduce or the experience of them improve so that they're less aversive despite an absence of the direct treatment. And this may be linked to things like changes in the brain. This could be linked to those sort of classical conditioning effects, but there could be an otherwise, uh, this regulates the release of neurotransmitters that are responsible for things like modulating pain and discomfort and thus help a patient react better to the symptoms to which they are presenting. Yeah. And placebos may still follow some of the effects of regular treatment schedules and, and different things like that. Like you might still see some withdrawal symptoms, uh, immediacy and delay of effects or an overall efficacy. You might see some of that stuff through that placebo effect. And now, of course, important here, placebos, they produce many positive effects, but they do not treat the underlying cause. They will not cure cancer, infections, tumors, what have you. They are they are symptom treaters at best inconsistently. And one quick note on here is that the nocebo effect is that placebos can actually result in aversive side effects, even though they have no active chemicals. So that, that can be uh, something to be on, on the lookout for. I think that wraps it up nicely. Awesome. Well, we have a quick piece of listener mail. Okay, so this one comes from listener Kim, who reached out to us and said, I just recently started listening to your podcast, mostly on road trips and on my way home. I think a lot of people that's sort of the case is road trips and, and driving it's the place to be yeah she said i laugh out loud at how well your humor confirms the thoughtful insight and ideas surrounding each topic it's refreshing to hear well-rounded nerds who can also be humorous and interestingly mature immature in such a good-natured way it's unfortunate both of you guys are married just kidding you guys are a lot of fun keep up the great entertainment <laughs> <laughs> well i'm extremely flattered and thank you kim and i i really appreciate the fact that you you find us funny because sometimes i worry <laughs> that we don't come off that way 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of those things where you know it's hard to tell whether or not the humor lands because we are literally just talking to each other. And so it's always fun to see that some some joke has landed or something has worked out. I mean, and there are times where we second guess jokes literally all the time. I would say every time a joke comes up, we're like, should we say that? Is that okay? Or, uh, you know, you, I mean, you've heard Abraham say, oh, no, more than once, probably when I've said something. <laughs> you know, we, we do appreciate the feedback, though, because, I mean, we try to balance that with some stuff that's insightful, stuff that's meaningful and stuff that is really kind of like getting to the crux of what we're trying to discuss in the topic. I do like that you said we sometimes do this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> We do, though. We do. Every time there's a joke, we're like, what is that? Uh, should we? Uh, uh, you know, 60% anyway. of the time it works every time. That's it. I'm the Brian Fantana of this podcast. <laughs> so, yes, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, and yeah, also another thing that is maybe giving away the the behind the scenes stuff. But the fact that we record this online and always have makes it so that if the internet ever freezes, which is like at least 30% of the time uh-huh. that someone will make a joke and the other person just staring, waiting for them to unfreeze. So yeah, our feedback is basically non-existent. It's always really interesting because Abraham will freeze. And I'm like, did he tell a joke or did he end the bullet point? Or did he just, I have no idea. Did he ask me a question? I'm just going to pretend like I answered a question. I don't know. <laughs> so it's really interesting sometimes. He's just sitting there grinning at me all stupidly. So I'm guessing he made a joke. <laughs> that's how it goes that's it that's the entire format all right so we have some recommendations let's do it recommendations all right so i'm gonna recommend the tv show the mandalorian and it's a star wars show it's on disney plus and i think it's great and i'm gonna stop my recommendation there so that you can do your recommendation my recommendation this week is also The Mandalorian because that show is brilliant. I've really enjoyed it so far. It's been so much fun. It's been really cool to see the Star Wars universe expanded. It's been cool to see new characters and new worlds and different ideas. And every episode is usually its own little self-contained adventure with the general narrative thread running throughout. Some fabulous cameos and guest stars in there. What's really impressive is is if have you seen how they shoot some of this like the stage that they're on yeah oh man yeah, it's really really wild they basically invented a new way of shooting almost it's it's like a green screen but not it's actually like the environment is actually there but it's being projected toward the camera kind of or it's like it's being projected on a screen that's creating this this sort of 3d landscape that that then the actor can move around and rather than just in front of a green screen where they have to just pretend their environment is around them and this one the, the actor will actually see it actors i should say and like seeing how much of the show is shot that way it is just it is unbelievable how cool it is that they do this and then the writing is really good i understand that at the time that we're recording this the internet is a little pissed off at the child in the show yep Aside from that, I just have lots of good things to say. So I'll let you say your piece. I talked for a long time. I think what I really enjoy about it is that it's the Star Wars universe is so big, right? Like when you watch the movies, they're huge. There's there's fleets of armies. There's the Death Star. There's the Starkiller base. Like they're huge set pieces and they're huge, big moments. And so in this show, though, it doesn't feel like that. Everything feels small and contained and unique and every interaction is intentional and like you said the guest stars are really great and one thing i really like is that it feels seamless even though every episode has a different director 
And it's really cool to see that. And the directors they get are great. They got John Favreau. They've got uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, which is really cool. And her episodes were wonderful. The last episode that just came out was done by Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, I saw that. Taika Waititi did an episode and played a character in it, which I'm like all about because he was the IG unit in the first season. Right. Yeah. And so wonderful. So anyway, that's a recommendation. The Mandalorian finally gave in. Totally worth it. And saw it. Yeah, totally worth it. All right, I think that's all we have on The Mandalorian and (laughs) possibly all we have on placebos. Do you have anything else? No, I think that's it. I think we're good. All right, thank you so much to Kim for writing in. Thank you to you for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you, everyone who made it this far in the episode. We appreciate you. If you would like to check out anything else about us or this podcast, go to our website at www.podcast.com. Send us an email. Send us a message on one of the social medias send us a letter if you want to whatever we have a p.o box somewhere on our website i think we are now on reddit so you can find information about us there if uh, you have not done so please like and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast and i think that's all i have this is abraham and this is shane we're out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.